All right, and welcome back, beloved. Today's video is titled, What is Most Important in the Book of Revelation? What is the most important thing in the entire book of Revelation, which is such an important book, right? It's a, an eschatological book talking about the end times. We get to look and peer into the eternal state of heaven where we get to be with God. What is the absolute most important thing? I'll give you a second to think about it. Maybe you say it's the timing, the plan of God. Maybe you say it's Christ. Maybe you say it's the Antichrist, right? There's so many different amazing things in the book. Here's what I believe is the most important thing, and this will be the focus of the video today. It's the gospel. <laughs> the most important thing in the book of Revelation is the gospel. Without understanding the gospel, you won't understand the book. And now remember, the book is titled The Revelation, the Apocalypso, the Revealing of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, its primary purpose isn't to give us a time frame of when the end is coming. It's to reveal to us who Jesus really is and what he's done. And I had to ask myself, I was reading through it this morning, and basically this video is a sampling from pretty much all of Revelation of where you clearly see the gospel in the book of Revelation. I think it is so important. I believe there's some verses in Revelation that so clearly explain the gospel that it might be the most gospel clarity in the whole Bible. But this is what I think we have to ask ourselves. And when I say ask ourselves, I'm talking to people I minister to and myself. These are people who are fascinated with all the eschatological end time signs right now. The last couple of videos I've made are really more gospel centered. And uh, that doesn't mean I'm never going to do another video about some exciting end times news event or some war or something exciting like that. That's not what I'm trying to say. But have we left our first love? Question mark. If you're listening to this right now, and I know many people already shut this video off because they thought they were going to get something that just appealed to their flesh and they found interesting in the moment. And that is deathly, deathly serious. I want to talk about that a lot today. Have we left our first love? Now I'm preaching to myself. I love es eschatology and end times events more than anybody I know, right? very interesting. Before I was born again, I actually found them interesting. Like all throughout my life, I've found end times events interesting, but I haven't been able to glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ for any of my life until a few years ago when I was born again. That is exclusive to being genuinely saved. To find end times and, and, and very exciting scripture and, and signs of the times interesting, that isn't exclusive to the children of God because all of mankind knows that God is, and many who read his wor word realize that, that Yahweh is the true God. Even the demons believe and tremble. But those born again, our first love is Jesus, and the message of Jesus is the gospel. And so today, I just wanted to make notes of every time you see the gospel in Revelation, you're going to see it from Genesis to Revelation today. The gospel is the crown jewel of scripture. You know, all scripture points you towards Jesus. And all of Jesus's message was important, but, but the crown jewel of his message is the eternally important gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for sinners. So let's start now in Revelation 1. I really hope you enjoy this video, and I, I really think it'll help you with evangelism. Revelation 1 verse 5. Uh, the gospel, like in every verse, I'm trying to find the gospel here, okay? And so he's 
Jesus is speaking and, and he's, he's writing, God is speaking, right? And, and he's saying that this letter, this revelation is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He reveals to us who God is. He's the firstborn from the dead and the rulers of the kings of the earth. And here's the gospel to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Okay, so it's very important. Yes, Jesus Christ died and he rose from the dead. He is the ruler. But I want you to see the gospel in Revelation. Many people say the gospel is this, the gospel is that. No, the gospel is Christ washing us from our sins in his own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ literally satisfies the wrath of God against sin. It is part of the eternal covenant that we are in with God now ratified in the blood of Jesus. So all throughout Revelation, I want you to see how many times the Holy Spirit through scripture mentions the blood of Jesus and the, the lamb who was slain. Moving on in Revelation 1, it says, when I saw him, the son of man, I fell at his feet as dead. This is God. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I, he has no beginning and he has no end. He says, I am he who lives. God is alive. Jesus is alive. But this is beautiful and was dead. So this is Jesus speaking here because he was dead, right? And Jesus is claiming to be God. He says, I am the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm he who lives. He's the eternal life, right? But he was dead. And he says, behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of De Hades and of death. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He has the key. He can open up the door. He is the door to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. So key to the understanding of the gospel is that Jesus is God. And not just any God we want him to be, not just any God we think he is, he is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the glorious God, the majestic God, the gracious God, the loving God, and also that dreaded God, that terrifying God who drowned the entire world, who uh, the flood, right? That God who slayed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. The God that is so holy that if you even got near the holy of holies in an unclean manner, fire would leap out and just devour people whole. He is, Jesus is that God. And he was dead and is alive forevermore. He has the keys to death and Hades. So let's move on now. The gospel in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, the following verses so clearly explain the gospel. There's a vision of the throne room in heaven, and, and God the Father is on his throne. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And an angel comes and he says with a loud voice, who's worthy? Who can open the scroll and loose its seals? So this scroll, this is like the title deed to the earth. This is all of probably our souls, right? The redeemed souls, or maybe even the damned souls as well and their judgment, right? It's, it's everything. It's all authority. And he says, who's worthy to open the scroll and loose its seal? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So whatever this scroll is, it is vastly important because John weeps. He cries, 
because no one is worthy to open and read the scroll. Can you imagine if Christ did not die for us, how horribly sad judgment day would be for everyone? It's going to be horribly sad for many people, but the redeemed will joy and, and glory in what our Lord did. But Christ didn't have to die for anyone. He didn't have to. That was grace. If he didn't do it, it, it would have just been justice. It would, it would have been nothing wrong with that, right? And so it's almost as if John gets a small vision of like, oh no, like everyone on this title deed, every, like we're, we're all damned or, or there's just no hope for humanity, right? And so he weeps because no one, is, and no one can open that scroll or look at it. But one of the elders says to him, do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49 all the way through the Psalms, through the Old Testament to the day Jesus got here. It was always prophesied a Messiah, a Savior will come from the tribe of Judah. Then it says the root of David. Jesus Christ is the root, the originator, the creator of the line of David. He is also described as the branch of David because he took on flesh and was born according to the line of David. It's him, Jesus, who has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Okay, and the gospel's coming right here. So John looks, and in the midst of the throne of God and these four amazing angelic creatures that just cry out, holy, 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 all day, in the midst of all that, there is a lamb as though it had been slain. Absolutely beautiful. There's the lamb. There's Jesus. Now, Jesus was slain. He was killed, but he rose from the dead. So it's as though it had been slain. And he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Colossians says all the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. Christ is not a part of God. He is fully God and fully man. Jesus comes and takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The Christ of God, the Messiah of God, takes the scroll. When he takes the scroll, the four living creatures, the holy angels, and 24 elders, most likely the 12 apostles, right, of the Lamb, and also the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel, right, back in the day. Uh, they all fall down before the Lamb, before Jesus, and they have a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And this is what they say. Here's the gospel. They sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Here's the gospel. For you were slain, you were killed, and you've redeemed us to God by your blood. This is probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible. So clearly is the gospel represented here. Everyone is praising Jesus for all eternity. Jesus has the authority and is worthy to open the scroll, the authority and title to the earth and all of humanity. Why? Because he was slain and he redeemed us. He literally purchased us to God by his blood. That was the price. Mankind, our whole creation in Adam, all die. Mankind totally rebelled against God. God cursed all of mankind. And the only way out is through Christ. And the reason for that is man must die. There is a penalty for breaking the holy laws of God. That must be paid. No amount of faith or repentance or religion or anything can pay that to an eternally holy God. Only the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus buys us back. It's as if he goes into the slave market of humanity, looks at his bride, looks at his saints and says, I will purchase you. And he pays for us. And the, and the price is his own blood. It's so beautiful. 
He, he buys us back with his blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is what God is doing right now. Right now on earth, in real time, some yesterday, some today, some 10 years from now, who knows? God is separating people from all the nations and tongues through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are being genuinely born again, brought from the domain of the devil and darkness to the kingdom of light uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And he can do that because God's wrath is satisfied because Jesus paid the price. Moving on in Revelation 5, all of heaven begins to say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You can receive power and riches, wisdom, everything, honor, glory. All of heaven begins to praise Jesus. And this is very important for if you're ever evangelizing to a cult group that denies the deity of Jesus Christ, denies that Jesus is, yes, a man, but also God, right, in human flesh. Very sharp rebuke. And here's the rebuke to groups like Jehovah's Witness, Hebrews Roots, or Mormonism that claim Jesus is not God. Now, Mormons are a little different. They claim Jesus is deity, but he's not like really one with the Father. He's not in as high a place as a father. Jesus said, all who, who honor me should honor me just as they honor the Father. So all of these groups are cults. What they believe is a little different, but they all essentially deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That is the rock we live on, saints. Like seriously, you cannot mess with that. Um, if you mess with that, you are not born again, right? If you deny the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, you are not a Christian. And so this verse is so important because if Jesus is not God, why is all of heaven worshiping him? It, it makes absolutely no sense, right? I spoke to some Hebrew roots movement. That's a, that's a violent cult group. Uh, typically not all of them, but that's, that's a lot different than like Jehovah's witness or Mormons. And there's just no speaking to them. They just totally deny the deity of Jesus. They say he was a prophet just like, you know, Islam. And so if that's the case, a lot of these groups, they recognize scripture. They just twist and pervert it. Why would all of heaven be worshiping Jesus? It's so clear in scripture. God does not share his glory. If Jesus wasn't God, all of heaven singing to him would be idolatry. It would be a sin. It would be offensive to God. Jesus is God. God does not share his glory. He receives it in Christ. Worshiping Jesus as our great high priest, he gives us access to God, is worshiping God. Jesus said, he who believes in me does not believe in me. But in him who sent me, we worship God, we pray to God, we access God in Christ, through Christ. And so, very important verse when evangelizing. Let's move on to Revelation 7. <coughs> Excuse me, I still have that cough, it's sticking around. All right, Revelation 7. There's 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel sealed by God. So just to give you some background, these are going to be 144,000 supernaturally empowered Jewish evangelists from all the tribes of Israel. And what I find amazing about the 144,000, uh, well, number one, a lot of cult groups use the 144,000 to push people into doing works. Like if you try really hard, you can be a part of the 144,000. It is absolute nonsense. It is an act of God's sovereign grace in giving them this ministry opportunity. The 144,000 are also, I'll show you later, described as redeemed. So they are sinners like the rest of us that God is merciful to. We don't, we don't earn anything, right? And so what I find amazing about them, though, is we know the 12 apostles, right? Uh, they turn the world upside down, Acts says, right? They, they, they radically and rapidly evangelized and people came to faith. 
Well, during the tribulation, there's going to be 12,000 evangelists from each tribe, right? 12 times 12 is 144,000. So it's almost as if they're going to just evangelize the whole world. But I love how the Lord uses that number 12 again, right? It's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes equals 144,000. It's almost like you're going to have 144,000 supernaturally empowered apostles roaming about the world, preaching about Jesus. So many are going to be saved. It's really cool when you study it. Um, but they're sealed. And after the, the, they're sealed, and literally right after they are sealed, and they're sealed for service, and they're sealed to protect them from judgment, because God is pouring out judgment on the earth. And right after that, John sees in this vision a great multitude, which no one can number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, before Jesus, clothed with white robes. Remember those white robes, because you're going to see the gospel in a second, with palm branches in their hands. So these Jewish evangelists lead to the salvation of all the Gentile nations, right? Or not every single person, but a multitude that no one can number. And these are going to end up being martyrs. These Gentiles are going to be saved and then martyred. It's, it's beautiful. Crying out with a loud voice, they all say salvation. This is how they're praising God in heaven. Salvation belongs to our God. Jonah said that. He said, I'll pay my vows. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They then go on to say in verse 13, one of the elders uh, answered, John and the elder are talking and they're saying, do you know who these are? Do you know who these people are arrayed in white robes? Do you know where they came from? And John says, well, sir, you know, you know where these people came from. So he says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, right? They went through it. And here's the gospel. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Beautiful gospel imagery there that without Christ, all our righteousness is filthy rags. It is as if we are lepers walking around, hostile towards God, dead in our sin. If our righteousness is sin before God, how filthy is our sin before God, right? And so how do you get clean? How, how do you do that? You wash, your, you wash your clothing, right? Well, what do you wash your spiritual clothing in? The blood of the lamb. It's the only thing that can wash away sins. Absolutely beautiful, clear gospel. It then goes on to say, I love this verse, the lamb who is in the midst of the throne. Remember, the lamb is in the midst of the throne of God will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. Remember those living fountains of water. Jesus said on the great feast day, he, he stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. It says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So yes, they were martyred. Yes, they went through the tribulation. God is all knowing, all loving and wise. He allowed his children to go through that. And for all eternity, they'll, they'll glory in God's wisdom in allowing that and, and doing that for Jesus. And Jesus even worked that in them. And God will eternally comfort them. <clears throat> Let's move on now. Revelation 12, you're going to see the gospel here. So in Revelation 12, once again, to set the backdrop, Revelation 12 is a beautiful chapter. It goes into the entire eternal plan of God from the fall in the original creation of the devil uh, all the way uh, creation and then the devil, you know, leading us into sin 
all the way through Christ being born, ascending into heaven, and into the time of the tribulation. So in one chapter, if you study it well enough, you are going to see just thousands of years of redemptive history. So Revelation 12, I find to be one of the, the more mysterious and fascinating chapters in the Bible. Um, so yeah, Revelation 12, 9 says, The great dragon, the devil, was cast out. You see, at this time in the tribulation, if you want to do some homework, Daniel 12 says there's a time of trouble coming for Israel, right? A great tribulation that such as never happened to a nation. Imagine it like a Holocaust times 10, right? And it says that that time, Michael, in Daniel 12, it says Michael will stand up, right? And then in Revelation 12, lining up Daniel and Revelation 12 is awesome because they're written about 800 years apart talks about this fight between Michael and the devil in the heavenly places. So during the tribulation, Michael will stand up. It will be a time of trouble for the nations. And the archangel Michael guards the children of Israel. And Michael will win the battle. And the great dragon, the devil, will be cast out of the heavenly places, the galaxies. It says that serpent of old, it's identifying the dragon as the devil and Satan and the serpent from the garden. And it says this devil deceives the whole world. He's cast to the earth and his angels, demons, are cast out with him. And so this verse is just laying the scene. You're going to see the gospel in a second, but I just want to give you some backdrop. There's been a great battle in the heavenly places. We're at the end of time, the, the, towards the end of the tribulation, the devil is cast down to the earth and conquered. In 1210, it then goes on to say, then he hears a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, the power of his Messiah, the power of Jesus have come right? For, this is key, the accuser of our brethren. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Now we have to be very clear here, okay? The devil accuses saints. For example, how could you be saved? You did this. Now it doesn't mean every time you feel guilty, it's the devil. Because, and this is why we have to be so careful, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So there are times in my walk with Christ where the Holy Spirit, and I would say most of the time, the Holy Spirit has just con convicted me. I'm being selfish. I'm being angry. I'm being hypocritical. I'm being a sinner. There, and I need to repent. And that's good. And that's a part of the daily walk with Jesus. And I hope you experience that too. And it's usually, you know, uh, specifically as you grow in, in your knowledge of the word, it's not like I need to repent or I'm going to hell. It's Christ has died for me. I shouldn't want to do this. I shouldn't be selfish, right? Look at, look at what Christ has done for me. And out of the abundance of that love, lead me to repentance. Now on the other side though, there is a demonic and a satanic accusation against the brethren. This is where sometimes the legalism comes from, right? Like if you don't do this, you can't be saved. It is trying to justify yourself with the law. This is what Satan does all the time. He does this in the presence of God. So it says the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So the devil is thrown out of heaven. They have said this is the accuser of the saints, of the children of God. They are laying that charge against him. And this is how you overcome the devil. Spoiler alert. It's the gospel. <laughs> they overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb beautiful. Once again, that's the only way <laughs> the revelation is so key. When the antichrist is giving out the mark of the beast and forcing people to worship him, the way to defeat the antichrist or the devil is never to pick up your sword. No, nope. it's, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb.
And this is key by the word of their testimony. If you are in Christ, if you are born again, your testimony, we all technically have the same testimony. Okay. Now we all have different testimonies. God uses different means and different ways. However, all of our testimonies lead to the fact that Jesus saved us. Like that is my testimony. I was a wicked, miserable sinner. I began to learn about a man named Jesus. People had told me about him all my life, never really cared about him. I looked into him and everything changed when I believed in him. Like, that's it. Like, Jesus saved me. End of testimony, right? Now, there's way more that goes into it. And I can go on for hours and hours and hours. And I'm sure you can too. And, and I'm sure God glories in that. But when you really whittle down every truly born again believer's testimony, there's a couple key parts that are going to be there. Sin, Christ, salvation, they're all there, right? So we overcome by the blood of the lamb. Jesus died for our sins, the word of our testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. I want to bring up some scriptures breaking this down. I want to go a little deeper into the gospel. We overcome by, by the blood of the lamb. You see, Paul talks about this in Romans 8. It says, who will bring a charge against God's elect, against the chosen of God? He's talking, I believe, about the accuser, the devil, and the devil has apostles and the devil has ministers. They transform themselves into angels of light, the scripture says. So they bring charges against God's elect. And then Paul says, it's God who justifies. God does it. I don't do it. You don't do it. Who, who would dare bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? And then it says, it's Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession, prayers, for us. You see, this is the testimony, right? Like this is the testimony that yes, the devil sometimes rightly accuses me. I am a sinner, but it's God who has the authority to condemn me. The same God that sent his son Jesus to die for me. So God is the one who justifies me. That's it. That's the testimony. Like Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. Like that's it. Like I don't preach myself. Nothing I did saved me. You, you cannot save yourself. You just can't do it. It's, it's my testimony is that Jesus died for me and brought me to saving faith in that and, and regenerated me by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are all monergistic actions. These are all actions God did for me, right? I'm not saying I didn't do anything in my mind, but what I'm saying is in reality, I, I, I am within the eternal plan of God because God justified me. He, he, I'm one of his chosen. He died for me. Now we also talk about in Revelation 12, it says they didn't love their lives to the death. I want you to see what Jesus said. He talked about this in Luke 14. He says, if any man comes to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Wow. I mean, Look at modern day evangelism. Hey, Jesus wants to fix all your problems. Everything's going to be fine. He's going to get that car fixed for you or get you that new car. Uh, can you just say a quick five minute prayer? That's not evangelism. And this might be wrong. And I, and I pray the Lord forgives me if it is. I don't believe that's the gospel at all. And so Jesus does offer a free gift of salvation. But if he's given it to you, he's regenerated you. And when he's regenerated you, he can say stuff like this to you. And you're just like, okay, Lord, you're true. So if this is true, 
I want to be one of these disciples. I don't care what it takes. And he doesn't mean you should actually hate your father and mother with anger or your wife. He commands you to love your wife and sacrifice, be generous, uh, be Christ to your wife, like love her that much, right? What he's saying is compared to God and Christ, anyone that gets in the way of that relationship and any separation of that, God is like just a higher magnitude. Your relationship with God and your love with God and your service to God those are all on a different plane than all of creation once you're born again, right? And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you don't hate them compared to me, you can't be my disciple. And he says, if you don't even ha- if you don't hate your own life. And now you might say, well, Robert, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. What does he mean you're going you're gonna to hate your own life? Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, because Jesus does offer an immense amount of joy to my life and every believer's life. However, he didn't just save us so we could join him. That's not it. Matthew 10 says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. All who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And so this verse gives us the gospel so clearly. We overcome by the blood of the lamb. That's it. Because the lamb died for us, we have a testimony that God has really saved us. And because God has saved us, the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, and now we have a new heart, so we don't love our lives to the death. In fact, many saints I talk to, in fact, the saints who seem to be most interested in the things of God, especially in the West right now, have a general sense of depression or frustration about the way the world is going right now and how we just see God openly blasphemed and not worshipped all the time and just sort of a futility about all the trinkets the modern-day church is, is sort of just obsessed with that. Whereas I see many saints upset over those trinkets, we'd rather just have the true word of God. And so, you know, when Jesus says, if you don't hate your life, you can't be my disciple. That's because right now the devil hasn't been thrown out and conquered. He rules this earth. And so, yes, there's a certain groaning creation has until Christ comes back, but I was certainly more happy than before I was saved. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but there's a bit of a paradox there. So I got a little off topic from the gospel. I apologize. Let's get back to it. Revelation 13, the great treaty on the Antichrist, right? That's all about him. But you are going to see the gospel. So it was granted to him, to who? To the Antichrist, actually, to make war. This is a coming global dictator, right? A global ruler. He will be rich. He will have all the wealth of the world and he will be violent. Uh, He will make war with the saints and overcome them. He will stomp out the saints. They will be martyred. Authority is given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, world ruler. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose names have not been written in, and here's the gospel, the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I want to explain this from the foundation of the world. So this book of life, you better be written in it or you will worship the Antichrist. You'll be given over to a delusion and part of your judgment will be you will reject Christ and worship this false Christ, this Antichrist. But this book of life is of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I want you to see this from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis is written about 3,500 years ago. It describes events that start in the beginning about probably six to 8,000 years ago, right? Thousands of, from the beginning of time. And from the very beginning, I want you to see the lamb. Right after man sinned, we tried to cover up our nakedness with fig leaves. That's like false religion. We, you can't do it. It's like trying to cover up a dead man with a sweater. Like you're going to notice the man is dead, right? And, and so we try and cover ourselves up with fig leaves, but it doesn't work. So God expels them from the garden. 
But then the first sacrifice happens. For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. Why do you think this is written in scripture? I mean, come on, God is wise. He wasn't just like mentioning this. This is the first glimmer of the gospel. It starts in Genesis. Sacrifice of an animal to cover them, right? Then there's an entire nation of Israel, millions of people that are given a law. And in the law is this massive sacrificial system of all these lambs, millions and millions of lambs slaughtered for almost a thousand years or more. And God within the law says, now this, this, you know, is taking place, this sacrificial system, thousands of years after Adam is expelled from the garden and God does the first sacrifice, but God sets up the Mosaic law and he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement. This is so key. Atonement satisfies the wrath of God. Within the justice of God, it must be satisfied. God will punish every sin mankind ever commits. You will either pay them for yourself or Christ will have paid for them on the cross, but they will be punished. God is just. His universe will so be ordered in perfect justice, perfect righteousness, and perfect grace. And so you will pay for your sins or Christ will pay for them, right? And so God has given us this law and, and, and this blood makes atonement. It says the blood makes atonement for the soul. It satisfies the wrath of God. So from Genesis, the tunics of skin to this law, to this massive sacrificial system, then they turn away from God and God starts to tell them about this Messiah, this not temporary sacrifice, not a temporary lamb that only gets rid of your sins, you know, for a year. And then the high priest had to go back in every year and it would just remind them every year there's just more and more sin and we can't stop sinning. There needs to be an eternal solution. And God begins to prophesy all throughout the Psalms and the prophets of this Messiah that he would be the sacrifice. Look at Psalm 40. This is now written about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Christ is even born. And it prophesies of him. And in the New Testament, they bring it up and it says, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you just set up a whole sacrificial system. I just saw Leviticus, this whole system. What do you mean you don't desire it? And it says, my ears you have opened. In the New Testament, it says, a body you have prepared for me, right? Who is this? Why doesn't God desire these sacrifices anymore? Because they were all a shadow and a prediction of the coming eternal sacrifice that Christ made. It says, burnt offering, sin offering, you don't require, it's done. He's setting it aside now. Something better is coming. Then I said, behold, I come. Remember, the book of life is of the lamb slain from the foundation of the universe. God mysteriously reveals him in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He gets a little clearer in the Psalms and even in the Proverbs. Then in the prophets, he gets very clear of what he's doing. And in the New Testament, it's crystal clear what he's done. He says, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. It says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news, the gospel of righteousness, not my righteousness, but Christ. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus is born, it gets clear. It says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Talking about a righteous suffering servant in Isaiah 53, a lamb, right? That was led as a lamb to the slaughter 700 years before Jesus is born talking about a righteous, good, suffering servant. And for some reason, it pleases the Lord to crush him. That word means crush. Why? The Lord's righteous. Why would he want to 
crush this humble suffering servant. It says he's put him to grief. Well, this is why he makes his soul an offering for sin. It says he'll see, the Messiah will see his seed, his posterity, his family, those born again through the eternal seed, the gospel. It says he'll prolong his days. He will live eternally. Jesus is the Lamb of God. All this scripture I'm explaining to you, this is why when John in the New Testament sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't just make that up out of nowhere. It had been prophesied for thousands of years in Genesis, in the law, in the Psalms, in the prophets. This temporary sacrificial system, no good. It's not going to, we're going to keep sinning. There's nothing, we want to live with God eternally. What can we do? Jesus answers that. He's the Lamb of God, right? And so within the book of Revelation, you have the clearest example. Let me continue on. Revelation 14, there's another vision. Behold, a Lamb, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion, right near the Mount of Olives. That is where Jesus comes back. And he's with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And they have their father's name written on their foreheads. And it talks about these Jewish evangelists. They sing a new song before the throne. They're in heaven. They've most likely been martyred. It says, before the four living creatures, the holy archangels praising God, the 144,000 praising God, the elders praising God. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were, here's the gospel, redeemed from the earth. Redeemed with what? Bought back with what? I just told you. The blood of Jesus. It's so clear throughout Revelation. When you see it from Genesis to Revelation, it becomes even more clear. It says these, the 144,000, were not defiled with women. They're virgins. They're pure. They're the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and that's a great exhortation to us. We need to follow the lamb wherever he goes, right? But back to the gospel, it says these were redeemed, purchased back from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. So as God is pouring out his wrath in the tribulation, he's redeeming the 144,000, more of Israel at the second coming of Christ and Gentiles all throughout. It says, uh, it goes on to say, another angel flying in heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach. So this is amazing. The 144,000 are preaching the gospel throughout the earth before the judgment of God falls. Revelation 14, you are right before the, the bull judgments. Half the world's population is dead at this point. Serious judgments have happened. The earth, most of earth, God's grace and creation is taken away. The grass is burnt up. Rivers turn to blood. Serious times, right? An angel flies in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, everlasting gospel to preach. Here's the gospel, the word gospel in Revelation to those who dwell on the earth. And he preaches it to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. I can't wait to see this. I don't care if I'm dead or alive. I know the Lord will let me see this one day, real time. An angel flying in heaven saying with a loud voice, fear God. Very important for evangelism. It starts with the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And here's my reasoning why you start evangelism with the fear of God. We're not wiser than God, and we're certainly not wiser than an angel, right? And so if an angel opens his mouth to preach the gospel, and he starts with fear God, that's a great clue of how we should start, right? Fear God. Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. He's warning, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Jesus is the creator, right? Fear God give him glory. So his gospel is that the creator has died for you and made a way. 
That is a great salvation. And the Bible says we cannot reject so great a salvation. Then another angel comes. I included this because I think it is so key for biblical evangelism. We must warn of judgment. Now that doesn't mean warn, hey, I see the signs and the end of the world is coming. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. The end of our world, like, like our individual life is coming one day, whether it's the end of time and we're near the end, or it's a thousand years from now and we all die in a couple decades, right? The judgment of God is coming and all faithful evangelism must warn about it. If you love someone, you will warn them about it. In fact, if you say, Hey, you know, I just want to be loving. I don't want to warn about judgment. I'm just going to be loving. You're honestly lying to yourself. And here's why you care more about what that person thinks of you than their soul. God has given us clear prescriptions. Jesus himself is the example. He warned about hell more than any character in the Bible. So follow his instructions. And if you're going to evangelize, yes, you must gently and lovingly warn of eternal damnation in the lake of fire. That is serious. That is part of the gospel. Let me explain it. This angel comes down. He says, if anyone worships the beast and his image, the antichrist, his image, or receives his mark, this is what he warns will happen. He will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's a, a vivid example. It says it's poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And this is what he says is coming. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Terrifying. I, I don't want anyone to go to hell. This is just what scripture says. Tormented by God. That's what hell is with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, the same one saying, holy, 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 they will be around you and in the presence of the lamb. I've heard many people attack the doctrine of hell lately. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I was jealous of a YouTuber. He had many hundreds of thousands of followers and he seemed to be good at first. And I, I watched one of his videos and he began to attack the doctrine of hell and, and, essentially say, no, there's no eternal punishment. And Christians who do that are actually blaspheming Jesus. They're making him more angry than Jesus wants to appear or more indignant. It's not true at all. Jesus said it more than anyone in hell. The fire is not quenched. And in revelation, it says it very clear. The truth about hell, it is eternal torment by God through Christ, because the presence of the lamb is even in hell right? Where can I flee from your presence? God is the God of hell. God created heaven and hell. Okay. Hell was a place for the lake of fire is a place for the devil and his angels. It wasn't originally created for you. The masses of mankind will end up there and they have absolutely no hope if not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that, you're not really going to be preaching the gospel. And that's justice. It's sad, but that's justice. That's how far and how horrible sin is. We don't think of sin the way the Bible speaks of it. We, don't, we, we take it kind of lightly and joke about it. It is a serious matter. No one will be joking about sin in eternity. All of creation stands to attention when God calls Mercury, Pluto, Saturn, universes. When God speaks, stand to attention. They flee from his presence. And then we get to mankind and we curse and blaspheme him. Utterly terrifying to think what will what the lake of fire will be like. It, it will just be the wrath of God rolling over you for all eternity. And you will know in your heart, you deserve this. And I don't like speaking this way, but I, I you're never going to go to the physician unless you realize you're sick. The word of God makes us realize we're sick. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, no rest day or night. 
I almost have tears in my eyes. This is what the lake of fire is. No rest day or night. This same Jesus that died for us will come back. And when he comes back, Revelation 6 says, people will literally be crying out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, crush us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. The lamb who shepherds us, guides us to the eternal life, died for us, bled for us, is coming back in wrath against those who reject him. This is a glorious gospel. Like I said, it's loving, it's merciful, it's gracious, it's terrifying, and it's glorious. It just is. Saints glory in every part of Jesus. He is altogether lovely. His grace is obviously beautiful, his mercy, his wisdom, his patience, his gentleness. But yes, to the saints who love God, even God's wrath is glorious and beautiful to us. Our beloved Song of Solomon says, is altogether lovely. There's nothing God does in scripture that offends me. I know he is just and has his reasons and I, I justify him. Let God be true and every man a liar, the Bible says. The gospel finishing up in Revelation 21, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Once again, the Alpha and the Omega. And he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. Salvation's a free gift to him who thirsts. And that's why I talk about the judgment and wrath of God to make sinners thirsty for mercy, right? Revelation 22, you're, you're in heaven now, the eternal state, and there's a pure river of water of life, right? And it proceeds from the throne of God and the lamb and revelation 22 finishes up it says i jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches the book of revelation was written for the churches he says i am the root the creator and the offspring the branch of david the bright and morning star and the spirit the holy spirit and the bride the church we say come come to jesus let him who hears say come and let him who thirsts come this is an open invitation from God to be saved. It says, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus stands up in John chapter seven. It says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So this is what I want to explain now. This is the gospel. This is what God has done. And I told you the gospel is the most important thing in the book of Revelation. Have you noticed a key theme though? And I brought up this picture for a reason. It's a bloody mess, right? There's blood everywhere. Well, not as much as there should be, but the blood, the atonement, the gospel is the most important part of Revelation. The most important part of the gospel is the atonement. Let me explain. I want to explain propitiation to you. I want to explain what an atoning sacrifice is from Romans 3 very clearly and why it's amazing that God would die for anyone. Now, scripture is amazing. Scripture is the word of God. It is God breathed, right? And scripture all points to Jesus. And Jesus, the most important thing he said was the good news, the gospel. But the very heart of the gospel is the atonement right? It, books have been written about the atonement. It is so important that every born again disciple of Jesus fully understands what the atonement is, what God has done for you. So let me do my best and believe me, I will do not that well here. So please listen to uh, what Paul Washer preaches on the atonement. Listen to John MacArthur or Steve Lawson preach on the atonement. Do yourself a service, shut this video off right now and go let them tell it to you. 
But if you're going to keep watching this video, let me do my best, okay? So it says, what then? Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's about to preach the gospel. In fact, Romans 3 is like the great treatise on the gospel. It is the clearest, like, this is what the gospel is that he's writing to the churches. But it's like very doctrinal and laid out clearly. Before he does that, he has to explain to them the state mankind is in. And before he does that, to be humble, he says, are we better than they? And not at all. Like a believer is no more morally worthy of heaven than a non-believer. No one gets to heaven based off their personal worth. So he says, not at all. He says, we've charged both Jews and Greeks. They are all under sin. All of us are under sin. That's terrifying. Now we joke about sin. My goal with this video is to show you how serious it is. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says it's righteousness that delivers on the day of wrath. No one is righteous. And this is what it says. No one understands. No one, none seek after God. All throughout the Bible, there's no one who seeks after God. No, not one. Again and again and again. Mankind is not ignorant of God. We're actually hostile towards God. John chapter 3 says the light has come into the world. Men hated the light. Jesus is the faithful witness. He shows us who God is. God has sent his son to die for creation. And even knowing that, as soon as the light comes around, like cockroaches, we flee from it. We hate the light. We do not seek God. The Bible says they have all, all of humanity turned aside and they have become unprofitable. That word means worthless. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's none who does good. No, not one. Jesus said, no one is good, but God. And then he begins to indict humanity. He says their throat is an open tomb, death coming out of our mouths. With our tongues, we practice deceit. The poison of asps is under our lips, venom under our lips as we curse God's creatures, right? Other human beings. It says our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and our feet are swift to shed blood. Many people will try and justify themselves of why they deserve to go to heaven and say, oh, I haven't killed anybody. Jesus said, you don't understand the law. The law of God is perfect, converting the soul, the psalmist said. If you even hate someone or curse them, you might as well have murdered them. That is how holy and perfect God is. If you were to hate someone unjustly, it would be so offensive to God. He could never dwell with you. It says their feet are swift to shed blood. It says destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. We don't know the way of peace. Look at World War II. Look at the war going on in Russia and Ukraine. Look at Taiwan. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who's called the wisest man ever in the Bible, says, insanity is within the heart of men. The very desires of men are insane. We are a fallen creation. Like mankind, we don't even understand this. We have no idea. I have no idea. We study scripture for a thousand years. You have no idea. Like just to get a glimpse of it, the universe cowers in fear of the creator. We have no idea what he's like. And watch the media, watch a movie. People are cursing Jesus and using his name all the time. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now it says, we know that whatever the law says, the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody. It says, it says to those who are under the law, and in a sense, we are all under the law. We are all accountable to God, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. 
This is terrifying if you understand it. Every human being on Judgment Day will be totally naked and guilty before a holy God who is very angry at sin. The Bible describes his wrath like in a vial, and every sin, it just drips and builds up. And one day, the storm of God's wrath is just unleashed for all eternity. It says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is just the knowledge of sin. Go all the way back to the garden, the tree of life and the tree we should not have eaten of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The law of God is just knowledge of sin. It cannot save you. It damns you. It kills you. It doesn't make the law bad. It makes us realize we're bad. It says, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So yes, that's a hard message. I just warned you about hell and the lake of fire. And I just essentially indicted humanity. Just like Paul, this is just scripture. This is the state of mankind. And the glory of the gospel shines so much brighter when it's against the dark backdrop of how far we have fallen and, and what we have to do with this God on judgment day, right? The, the judgment day, the day of the Lord is described as, I mean, the prophets described it. Google it. The day of the Lord comes blazing like an oven, cruel and terrible. I mean, just unimaginable. As harsh as this video sounds, I haven't even done it a, a, a sliver of justice. But now, th that's why the gospel is such good news. But now, so all that is horrible. I agree, I'm saved. I agree with that. That's bad. That's all bad news. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law, Leviticus, all that stuff I just showed you, and the prophets, all that stuff I just showed you, witnessed this coming righteousness of God, our only hope, because <laughs> I've just shown you we have no righteousness of our own. It's the righteousness of God through faith, trust, belief in Jesus Christ to all and on all, who believe there is a qualifier. Do not stop with to all and on all. Oh, universal, to all and on all. Adam sinned, Christ, you know, saved us all. No, to all and on all who believe. You must believe in Christ for there is no difference, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, many people hear that and they want to hear, okay, then we're all going to be saved. But Jesus said, narrow is the road to life and few are on it. Wide is the road to destruction. And I've just described to you what destruction is. We know it's horrible. So if wide is the road to destruction and many are on it, now it's not funny and it's not whimsical. And I certainly don't think we should brush by it when we evangelize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not like, oh, all have sinned. No, it's serious. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is you can be justified freely. In fact, we were. The church was. The bride of Christ is justified freely by his grace, based on the mere grace of God through the redemption, the purchasing back by the blood of Jesus that's in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth. God placarded Jesus. God set him forth to humanity. And this is what he did it as, as a propitiation. That word is so important that you study that word. Propitiation by his blood, the blood of Jesus, the ransom, the payment for our debt was the blood of Jesus, right? What it does is it satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus said, do not think I came to abolish the law. I didn't do that. I came to fulfill the law. He lived a perfectly righteous life for us and he credits us with his good works. Then 
if he only did that, you'd all be damned. I'd be damned. If Jesus only came here and lived a perfect life for me and gave me all his righteousness, I'm still damned. Why? What do I do with all my sins? There's nothing to do. And so I need a sacrifice for those sins. And God set forth Jesus. This is why it's such good news when you understand this. Jesus's blood is an atoning sacrifice. It satisfies the wrath of a holy God who has been offended by all my sin and by Jesus's blood. And the way I get access to that blood is through faith. And the faith I have that Jesus actually died on the cross for me, not potentially, it's very offensive to me. Jesus did not potentially die on the cross for me or anyone. Jesus actually died on the cross for me. And the way I know that is God gave me faith. It is a gift. My faith doesn't save me. My faith is a gift God gave me because Christ died for me. Okay? It demonstrates God's righteousness. I played no part in it. Because in his forbearance and patience, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. That is beautiful. He was patient and he passed over it. He did this to demonstrate at the present time his own righteousness, God's righteousness, that he might, God is just. Every single sin is recorded in the mind of God. Revelation describes the great white throne judgment as book after book after book being unraveled and the roles of God and every thought of mankind and every sin that's ever been done. That's what the lake of fire is. It's judgment for that for all eternity. It says so that he might be just punishing every sin, perfectly just, but he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God justified me by dying, sending his son to die for me. And now I have faith in Jesus. I know that. I'm aware of that. So the question is, and when you've heard the gospel like this, it might invoke you to say something along the lines, just like in scripture, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Because I've just told you everything God has done to save humanity. I've also told you, you don't do anything to get saved. And yet, now I'm going to tell you a paradox. You have to do something. You see, Jesus came in. What must you do now? I just told you about the most important thing in the book of Revelation, the atonement, all the things God has done. Now, what must you do? And here's what you must do to be saved. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that's because the king of God was right there, right? He is the king of the kingdom. He's died now. The time's fulfilled. The Messiah has died. He has risen from the dead as well. And this is what Jesus says to do. Repent. If you've never understood that sin was this serious, repent, turn away from it, and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news that Jesus has died for the ungodly. Repent and believe. Isaiah 55 gives us instructions on how to do that. It says, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts. It is a call by the God of the universe to repentance. Everyone who's thirsty for God, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. This is what he's saying. You have no money, come and buy it. It's free. It's a free gift. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Reject sin, turn away from this world, whatever your favorite project is, anything you're putting before God, turn away from it now. I don't care how good it seems in your eyes. There's a way that appears right to man but it is the way of death, Proverbs says. Nothing is more important than God. 
Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Don't listen to me. Listen to scripture. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Goes on to say, incline your ear, pay attention, come to me here and your soul will live. God is promising eternal life for your soul. He says, I'll make an eternal covenant with you. Now a covenant is ratified by blood. You've watched enough of this video by now. The everlasting covenant ratified by the eternal blood of Jesus. He says, I'll give you the sure mercies of David, right? That though he would die, he would live. Then he gives us instructions on how to repent. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And here's your promise. He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And this is why God will abundantly pardon, because Christ paid the penalty. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways, his moral ways, are higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. For as the rain comes down in the snow from heaven and doesn't return there, right? The rain comes down, it waters the earth. All of creation is witnessing to you that God is a redeeming and saving God. As the rain falls from heaven and, and gives life to the earth, so Christ came from heaven and gives life to his bride, right? It, it makes it, you know, give seed to the sower, bread to the eater. All of creation witnesses to the Christ, right? So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Jesus is the word made flesh. It will not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it will prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will not return void, and I hope you've enjoyed hearing his word today. So what is the most important thing in the book of Revelation? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the most important part of the gospel is the atoning work of Christ on the cross, that Christ bled and died for ungodly sinners like me. Have a great day.